0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio.
1: Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Happy New Year, everyone. Many thanks to all of you for all of your well wishes and support. I hope you and your loved ones are off to a good start this new year as well. Last time we looked at the Shijing, or a classic of poetry, a collection of 300 or so poems dating back as far as 3,000 years ago. These poems were selected by Confucius. In that episode, I mentioned some concerns I had about the criterion used for selection. Poetry, in my view, is like any other form of literature. It's at its best when it conveys life in all of its richness. My concern was that Confucius had had his own agenda and had smoothed down some of life's rougher edges when selecting the poems. Refinement is one thing. Elegance and stoicism, those are qualities I can admire and praise. I certainly don't mind seeing those in poems. But does the refinement come at a cost? Does the commitment to virtue, with that word in quotes, lead us away from true feeling? Does it sap the energy of the artistic work? Today we're going to look deeper into Confucius. What kind of person was he? What was his influence? And how is he viewed today? And what can we gain by reading the works he selected as part of his devotion to literature and education? And in particular, we'll be taking a look at the Analects, the collection of sayings and stories that his students gathered and passed along, until finally being preserved in written form, most likely several centuries after his death. Confucius was born around 550 BC and is believed to have lived to the age of 72. His his was a time of fragmented society. The great Zhou dynasty, which had unified China, had been fragmented into warring states led by descendants of the Zhou royal family. The states themselves were often broken apart by rival families, gaining and seeking power. Confucius seems to have spent 13 years wandering from one regional court to another. Gaining followers. And here we might use the term disciples, although, as we'll see, his teachings were deliberately secular. One parallel to Jesus that is appropriate is that Confucius did not himself write anything that has survived. His pupils and the generations that followed are the preservers of his works. This means something significant for the character who is at the center of these writings. As readers, we suspect that he knows more than we do. The works encourage this. The stories or sayings or observations appear to be pregnant with meaning. Here's one example of a seemingly innocuous phrase that can be unpacked by the listener. This is from Book 9 of the Analects, number 13. Su Kung said, If you had a piece of beautiful jade here, would you put it away safely in a box, or would you try to sell it for a good price? The master said, Of course I would sell it. Of course I would sell it. All I am waiting for is the right offer. Is that an idle piece of dialogue or an offhand remark? It sounds that way at first. But do we see something else at work here? This self-contained little story comes in the larger context of the Analects as a whole, and in this larger work, we are given the sense that the teacher knows something that we don't. And that his wisdom is something we need to explore. There must be some reason why this particular story had meaning for his followers. So we look deeper. When he says that, of course, he would sell a piece of beautiful jade, we understand him to be asking what good it would do to keep such a beautiful, valuable object in a box. Who does it benefit to keep it there? What good does it do the owner other than to satisfy his or her greed? This line is repeated twice. Of course I would sell it. Of course I would sell it. And then we see that we part with such a beautiful thing only upon receiving the right offer. Here's our lesson. We should value objects, possessions, and material things, but still recognize that they are not to be held higher in our esteem than more important concerns like our personal character, or our reputation, or our duties, or our relationships with others. All that from a simple, three-line anecdote. There are longer anecdotes as well, but the experience for us as a reader is similar. The Analects don't have a plot or a story or show a character undergoing a religious transformation or embarking upon a quest or coming to any understanding through conflict or ordeal or epiphany. They are not ordered or grouped according to any theme. Rather, they ask us to take each one on its own and to engage with it, we fill in blanks, as we do with short poems. But there's a problem here. How do we engage? In addition to understanding, is it our role to agree and disagree, to accept and reject? Or is it our role to take these words as handed down wisdom, as a kind of gospel to follow? This is the tension we still live with. For centuries, the Analects and the other works cited by Confucius were viewed as foundational to Chinese education and good government. The five works in what's called the Canon of Confucius served as both the basis for schooling and as the entryway to the large and powerful Chinese bureaucracy. We've already discussed the Shijing, or Classic of Poetry, and the Analects of Confucius. The remaining three works in the Canon of Confucius are a description of rituals, which is actually spread across several texts, the music accompanying the Shijing, which has been lost, and the famous I Jing, or Book of Changes. Today, Confucius is controversial. He was rejected by Mao and his followers as feudal and backwards, and Confucianism has been blamed for hindering technological and societal advancement. Modern commentators in China and Taiwan disapprove of of his views of women as subservient to men, which is particularly acute given his emphasis on a family as being a microcosm of the state. There are many other objections as well. Which is perhaps to be expected, not only did Confucius himself live twenty five hundred years ago, the interpretation of his works was solidified and we might say calcified during a much different era and by people with much different aims in the sixth century, a thousand years after Confucius died, a Confucian text noted, quote, "Be devoted to your parents with all your strength, loyal to the throne with your life, the husband leads the wife." Follows we can recognize the sentiments as being similar to those in Confucius, but if there's anything quite that dogmatic or rigid in Confucius's own works, I'm not aware of it In any case, I cite it here to show how grating it is to the modern ear. Confucius, or here we should really say Confucianism, was not just wisdom and serenity and quiet self-reflection as we see in the rivers and mountains paintings or in lute strummings, or calligraphy, or poetry. There's also an authoritarian streak that seems problematic to us. For all that, in the fall of 2015, the Wall Street Journal noted that China appears to be turning back to Confucius. It remains to be seen whether this push by the Chinese government will be successful or long-lasting, and perhaps more importantly, what form of Confucianism they are pressing forward. The quote I read above is one that some primary school students have in their textbooks today, although the director of the school noted that some parents have objected and would prefer that the students study subjects such as English to better prepare them for the modern world. The education authorities themselves criticized a pair of schools for going too far. A Shanghai school had 700 students kneel before their parents. A Beijing school went too far in teaching girls, quote, traditional female virtue." The true extent of this new return to Confucianism will be something that will need to be watched, and we won't know the answer for many years. Let's set today's politics aside, at least for now. Instead, let's peel back the layers and take a look at Confucius as a historical figure and the literary text of the Analects. Confucius was above all a teacher, He believed in individual education and reflective study as the means to both self-improvement and the fostering of the state values he prized, peaceful, virtuous government. He was a great champion of using literature, specifically poetry and music, to achieve those aims. His view seems to be that improving oneself as an individual, particularly by education and a virtuous life, would lead to virtuous citizenry, which in turn would produce prosperous and benevolent rulers and good government and a well-managed state, which in turn helps to foster virtue in the citizenry. There is no room for bad leadership in his model, just as there's no room for unengaged or non-virtuous individuals. Rather, as one commentator put it, the goal for Confucius is, quote, the perfect unity of social norms and natural behavior we see these goals in action throughout the analects in which practicing virtue leads to being a good citizen and in which good government is fostered by virtuous leadership in book 2 analect 3 confucius sets this down the master said guide them by edicts keep them in line with punishments and the common people will stay out of trouble but will have no sense of shame guide them by virtue keep them in line with the rites and they will, besides having a sense of shame, reform themselves. Here's his description of his own life, in which we see a similar pattern. This is Book 2, Analect 4. The Master said, At fifteen I set my heart on learning. At thirty I took my stand. At forty I came to be free from doubts. At fifty I understood the decree of heaven At sixty, my ear was attuned. At seventy, I followed my heart's desire without overstepping the line. That end of that phrase, without overstepping the line. That self-limitation is the hallmark of a virtuous person in the Confucian worldview. Is it prudent? Certainly. I could imagine a revered elder saying it today. I could also imagine a government with authoritarian leanings wanting to make sure that everyone absorbed that lesson. That's been the knock against Confucianism, that it's a means of controlling the population, make people want to be virtuous, and turn them into sheep. There's no need for a state-sponsored censor if everyone has a censor built in. But was that really Confucius' view? We've already heard one analect that suggests that it wasn't, or at least, that it was not something to impose by edict. This isn't Machiavelli taking an amoral approach to advising a prince on what would be most effective, Confucius presumably would object to the idea that leaders should be anything but virtuous themselves, which would mean they would not cynically impose a worldview on their citizenry just for the sake of keeping them under control. And here's one of the longer and most famous Analects in which Confucius and several disciples Discuss what it means to be a good citizen. The translation, like all the translations that I'm citing today, is by DC Lao. This is from Book Eleven, Analect Number 26. When Su Lu, Sangxi, si, Jian Yu, and Kung Si Hua were seated in attendance, the master said, Do not feel constrained simply because I am a little older than you are. Now you are in the habit of saying, my abilities are not appreciated. But if someone did appreciate your abilities, do tell me how you would go about things. Zulu promptly answered, if I were to administer a state of a thousand chariots situated between powerful neighbors, troubled by armed invasions and by repeated famines, I could, within three years, give the people courage and a sense of direction. The master smiled at him. Chu, what about you? If I were to administer an area measuring 60 or 70 li square, or even 50 or 60 li square, I could, within three years, bring the size of the population up to an adequate level. As to the rites and music, I would leave that to abler gentlemen. Chi, how about you? I do not say that I already have the ability, but I am ready to learn. On ceremonial occasions in the ancestral temple or in diplomatic gatherings, I should like to assist as a minor official in charge of protocol, properly dressed in my ceremonial cap and robes. Tien, how about you? After a few dying notes came the final chord, and then he stood up from his lute. I differ from the other three in my choice the master said, what harm is there in that? After all, each man is stating what he has set his heart upon. In late spring, after the spring clothes have been newly made, I should like, together with five or six adults and six or seven boys, to go bathing in the river Yi and enjoy the breeze on the rain altar and then to go home chanting poetry. The master sighed and said, I am all in favor of Tien." When the three left, shang stayed behind. He said, What do you think of what the other three said? They were only stating what they had set their hearts upon. Why did you smile at you? It is by the rights that a state is administered, but in the way he spoke, you showed a lack of modesty. That is why I smiled at him. In the case of Chu, was he not concerned with the state? What can justify one in saying that 60 or 70 Li-square, or indeed 50 or 60 Li-square, do not deserve the name of state? In the case of Chi, was he not concerned with the state? What are ceremonial occasions in the ancestral temple and diplomatic gatherings, if not matters which concern rulers of feudal states? If Chu plays only a minor part, who would be able to play a major role?
0: Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
1: The Analect concludes with Confucius describing his objections to the first three speakers, but of course, the heart of the story is that Sai, and the, the master saying, I am all in favor of Tien. What does that mean, that he's siding with Tien? Tien has his heart set upon going bathing in the river, enjoying the breeze, and returning home chanting poetry. That's virtue for its own sake. It's the means to happiness, whether or not the state is involved. And in doing so, the state is improved by the actions of its citizen. But that is a secondary, not a primary goal for the individual. I'm going to conclude with some of the objections we have to Confucius and Confucianism before ending with some final thoughts. The first objection is that Confucius has been misused by the state for centuries. I don't think there's any question about that. It's not Confucius's fault, of course, but there's something in Confucius that perhaps lends itself to this. And in any case, I'm not sure that it matters. Even today, the return to Confucius has some troubling aspects and could wind up bringing misery to millions of Chinese people, and that's something to take seriously. For all of the merits of Confucius and his teachings, there is a streak of authoritarianism that might be impossible to eliminate and can be misused when put in the wrong hands. I mentioned one of the problems with this before, not just the expectation of fealty to the state, but the way that the family itself is viewed as a microcosm of the state. One must be loyal to one's king. One must also be loyal to one's father or one's husband. And the loyalty is not something that's earned, but something that must be granted simply by the nature of the position. We could use, we often talk about the separation of church and state, maybe we could use a separation of individual lives and state as well. I think This heavy emphasis on traditional family roles might be a bit unfair to Confucius himself. Of course, Book 1, Analect 11, suggests a kind of reverence for the patriarch that chafes us today. I'll read that one here. The master said, Observe what a man has in mind to do when his father is living, and then observe what he does when his father is dead. If for three years he makes no changes to his father's ways, he can be said to be a good son. This is strong and, in my view, far too strong. Respect is one thing, undue reverence is another. This is the kind of bestowal of power that turns fathers into patriarchs and patriarchs into tyrants. Respect should be earned. That son is good if he takes what is good and rejects the rest. Following someone's ways blindly for three years has no place in any moral calculus that I can subscribe to. But that's not all there is to Confucius. Confucius also emphasizes celebrating youth for their energy and ideas. Above all, it's about accepting roles, about understanding age and the passage of time. If we wash out the parts we don't like, the gender roles, the problematic gender roles, and the blind fealty to authority, there's something of value there in Confucius. Because along with Book 1 and Elect 11, there's also Book 3, elect 26. Yan Yuan and Qi Lu were in attendance. The master said, I suggest you each tell me what it is you have, your, you have set your hearts on. Su Lu said, I should like to share my carriage and horses, clothes and furs with my friends, and to have no regrets, even if they become worn. Yan Yuan said, I should like never to boast of my own goodness and never to impose onerous tasks upon others. Zulu said, I should like to hear what you have set your heart on, Master. The Master said, To bring peace to the old, to have trust in my friends, and to cherish the young. That's a very fine sentiment. In another Analect, he says, It is fitting that we should hold the young in awe. How do we know that the generations to come will not be the equal of the present? The last criticism is one I've already previewed. Is refinement and virtue really the best goal for an individual? Whose virtue? And does it distort literature to make that our aim? I think it does, although I don't see that as a reason to avoid the teachings of Confucius altogether. There's too much there that's rich. And Chinese culture and society has too long and fascinating a history not to want to engage with such a fundamental text. I'm bleeding into the final thoughts already. So here they are. Number one, Confucius's devotion to literature is admirable. I'm in favor of the project of self-study, and I wish we had more time and room in our own busy culture to spend alone with poetry and other forms of literary works. Reading Confucius and seeing this emphasized again and again is inspiring in that sense. Number two, I depart from Confucius, wherever the emphasis on virtue turns dogmatic or preachy. On the other hand, if we are looking at preachiness on a relative scale, it should be noted that we are a long way from the New Testament here. This turned into something like a religion, Confucius's works, but Confucius himself tended to keep religion out of the Analects. Unlike the Gospels, we don't need faith to understand the Analects. We all have a relationship with society or the state, whatever our religious beliefs. Confucius said that, quote, to keep a distance from the gods and spirits while showing them reverence is wisdom, is a kind of separation of church and state that serves us well, in my view. Number three, for this reason, as you've probably guessed, I'm on the side of the agree and disagree readers of Confucius, rather than try to understand so we can follow his teachings view. Number four, my concern that his commitment to virtue limits the individuals and the literature has some exceptions, at least. I like Book Eleven, Analect Ten, for this reason. After his prized pupil Yen Yuan had died, Confucius's followers told the master that he was showing undue sorrow. Remember this from the Shi Jing that Confucius had bragged that the Shi Jing had never forced undue grief on the reader. Rather than accept the blame. Confucius pushed back. Am I? He said. Yet if not for him, for whom should I show undue sorrow? I take Confucius to be saying something that I agree with wholeheartedly. Let's not tamp down our emotions. Let's let ourselves feel them to their fullest. And let's use literature for that aspect, as well as all the other many things that literature can do. Finally, I appreciate the Analects themselves as an interesting work, not just for their historical importance, although that would be enough. To be clear, if the Analects had been lost and rediscovered 2,000 years later, and they had never been used as part of Chinese history, their impact on me would be fairly minimal. Without all that Chinese history to contemplate, the Analects themselves would be more of a curiosity than anything. They're certainly not as vivid and powerful as, say the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Poetry of Homer, the Stories of the Old Testament, or the Greek tragedies of Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. On the other hand, I like some of these Analects very much. I've already mentioned several. Book 9, Analect 13, about the jade in the box, and Book 11, Analect 26, where the master sighs and says he is in favor of Tien. I too could set my heart by the principle, to bring peace to the old, to have trust in my friends, and to cherish the young. Then there's this one as well, a very precise view of the role of an individual in a state. This is from Book Nine, and lect Fourteen. The master wanted to settle amongst the nine barbarian tribes of the East. Someone said, but could you put up with their uncouth ways? The master said, once a gentleman settles among them, what uncouthness will there be? That's beautiful. Full of meaning and not dogmatic. There's a lot in there to think about and admire. I almost hate to unpack it because I'll ruin it. Let's do it this way. I'll unpack it. Then we'll pack it back up so we can admire it for its brevity. I hear in that story many Confucian themes, the importance of being a virtuous person, and the cycle of virtuousness that that he believes improves society. Don't just live among the virtuous, or expect that as a possibility. You must accept that those around you are not. Your job as an individual is to remain virtuous, to improve yourself, and to govern yourself accordingly, and to set an example for those near to you to follow, even in the face of great temptation. All that is conveyed with that simple question. Once a gentleman settles among them, what uncouthness will there be? We won't know until we try, but we can accept Confucius's word that values can be fostered through individual example, and that doing so is a worthy endeavor for all of us. And finally, I like Book 3, Analect Number 20. Chi Wen Zhu always thought three times before taking action. When the Master was told of this, he commented, twice is quite enough. Now, that's a person I want to spend more time with. That's it for the History of Literature. Join us next time as we hop over to India to see another example of ancient heroic epic, giving us a good comparison with the ancient societies of Greece and Mesopotamia. You can find more at jackwilson.com, that's J-A-C-K-E, Wilson.com, and historyofliterature.com. Don't forget to leave us a comment or send us an email, or review us at iTunes or your favorite alternative podcasting site. Did we get something wrong, or do you have any other thoughts to share? Don't be shy. You can also leave us a voicemail message at 1-361-4WILSON. That's one 361 4945766. Thank you for listening. Happy New Year and we'll see you next time on the history of literature.